Lord willing, I'll be covering three chapters this morning from our book uh, by Thomas More, Counsels and Thoughts, for the spiritual growth of spiritual life. Um, chapters uh, 13, 14, and 15 in part three. Um, the names or the titles given to those chapters, uh, I'll just give them as we go along and proceed through them. Not as complicated this time around. Sometimes these these titles that they he gives to these chapters are require some explanation in and of themselves. But chapter 13 is called uh, To the Believer Concerning a Rightly Directed Faith. A Rightly Directed Faith. Well, our, our author, Thomas More, he begins chapter 13 saying, We cannot walk in fellowship with God ab- abstractedly. We cannot walk in fellowship with God abstractedly as he is the infinite God. But we can walk with each of the three persons who are the one God. Now, what's he saying here? He's referring to the incomprehensibility of God. God is an infinite being. Um, So how can finiteness, you know, we being finite beings, how can finiteness comprehend infiniteness? You know, it, it can't fully comprehend it. So the doctrine of the Trinity teaches that God was pleased to reveal himself in three persons. And praise God. Um, he's done that, um, and, and that's it's been his will. This is of tremendous benefit, Moore argues, a benefit to us, uh, considering how we are, as persons, we are personalities. Uh, we have fellowship with persons. It's the only way we know how to have fellowship uh, is on a person-to-person basis, a person, from a personality perspective. Well, he, he talks more about this. On page 174 of his book, he says, in regards to the Father, he says, the Father is one person with whom we as persons can individually walk and have fellowship with, just as children do with their Father. We can understand that. The Lord Jesus, he writes, is another person with whom we, as persons, can have individual fellowship. And what's more with the Lord is that he's a person with two natures. Christ has two natures. He's fully God and he's fully man. You know, one of those makes him one with us in our humanity. It's not the case with the Father or the Spirit. And then thirdly, he writes, the Holy Spirit is another person with whom we can have personal fellowship distinct from the other two, in that although his special office is to assist us to walk with the Father, to walk with the Lord, um, it's another person in the Trinity, all, all three being God. Well, because of God being revealed in the Trinity, we can talk with each person of the Godhead, have fellowship with each person, all the while knowing that three three persons are the one true God. This is something we we take by faith. It's a tremendous faith booster, I think, when we consider, for example, our ability uh, to have an intimate fellowship with the person of Christ. You know, we should... 
we should often think about how much, how much he unchangeably loves us, how, we, how he can identify with our weaknesses, which, of course, he experienced uh, before his resurrection, struggling with the weaknesses of, the, of being a human being. Well, he, he sees us from his throne in heaven, and he watches over us with a jealous love. And yet he is always near us. He is always with us. That's his, he is imminent in his relation to us. And it's so very good for us to understand this and remember this. You know, he orders all things for our good. You know, truly what a, a blessing it is to not only know this, but to remember it. That's a blessing we have in this, in these personal relationships that we have with each of the Godhead. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16, it speaks to his special and powerful way that the Lord relates to those who belong to him. Let me read that. Beginning in verse 14, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So here we find our Lord is referred to as the great high priest. The work of a priest um, in the scriptures, as we read, it, it was to represent a people to God. God's people. Represent God's people. And um, the work of the priest was to intercess for the people. To pray for the people. Um, to offer up sacrifices of atonement for the people. It was a very unique and relational ministry that the priest had. Speaking, of course, the Levitical priesthood. Now, the passage that we see here in, in Hebrews, it says that Jesus, that he passed through the heavens. Now, this speaks to the supremacy and the preeminence of Christ in all things. He is above all things. So we have a, a priestly intercessor in Christ who is the greatest. In fact, he is the most sovereign in all of his works. And, and in all of his judgments, and all of his dealings that he has with his creation, he is preeminent. He is supreme in, in importance and in power. He rules perfectly over everything. And yet we have a personal relationship with Christ. And furthermore, the Bible it tells us that Jesus is not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with the weaknesses that we encounter in our humanity. He knows us in this unique way amongst the Godhead. Not that 
the Father or the Spirit doesn't know our weaknesses, but he can sympathize having that human nature. He is like us in this way, having experienced, as Scripture teaches us, the same temptations that we do. Yet, unlike us, not like us, he endured those temptations, but never sinning. So he is perfect and pure and holy. Finally, in that passage I read in Hebrews, in verse 16, it really brings this wonderful news in that short passage, it brings it all in by telling us what to do with the knowledge of these facts. In light of the sympathetic mediating experience of Christ, we can and most confidently, it says, most confidently draw near to the presence of God in order to receive good gifts. You know, gifts of mercy, of grace, help in our need. You know, the, these realities of Jesus' high priesthood, they ground the faith in which we are urged in Scripture. We are urged to continue in. And we are urged to take rest in these facts, to strive in knowing this, to strive in our, um, in our sanctification. So this is, this is a rightly directed faith. When we, again, understand what Christ is to us, and what we have in him, as we look to him, that is a rightly directed faith. And that's what the title of this chapter happens to be. Uh, Thomas More, he says that as we contemplate Christ's ordering of all things for our good, we recognize that means sometimes that we receive spiritual medicine. Other times, spiritual food. But always... Always, it is a spiritual good. And we don't, we don't like taking medicine. We don't like it. It tastes horrible. If it works, even. We don't like taking medicine. It's, 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 no, it's no fun. But it does make us better. Most of the time, right? It makes us better. Uh, we certainly like food. We certainly like food. Um... God made it pleasing to the senses. But whatever it is that God is giving us as needy children, whether it's medicine or food, it's exactly what we need, when we need it, and how much we need. We may not feel it's given in the right proportion, the, um, the right time, even the right medicine. But he knows. You know, what God gives to us can sometimes confuse us. Especially when it's the, the medicine side of things. It can confuse us. What is it that I have received here from the Lord? It is essential that our faith in Christ is well grounded in biblical truth. And it's not filled with some fanciful notions. There are so many out there in the world to hear. Those things that delude our hearts, cloud our thinking. 
Now, the intimate relationship that Christ established with us uh, must not be misunderstood. Christ, in our relationship with him, he has called us friends. He has called us friends as we remain obedient. John 15, verse 15, he says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. But just one chapter in John before Christ said this, he said in John 14, verse 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What's this? He, he calls us his friends. We're not his servants. And yet, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not a, a friendship that here on earth with one another we're, that we're familiar with like that. Jesus is not a friend on equal grounding with us, is the point. Like you know, many people try to do, you know, I've heard it. Jesus is my homie. He's my pal. He's my buddy. You know, th this is to bring Christ down to our level, friends. Understand this. The Lord Jesus Christ is indeed our best friend, and he initiated that friendship. But it is a friendship that is engulfed in worship. I hope you don't worship your friends that you know here um, in the world. But we worship him and him alone. It is Christ who is called in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And yet he's our, our best friend. Thomas More, he comments on, on this. He said how we should view our relationship with Christ. He says, the religion of the gospel is the religion of sanctified common sense. It's, it's guided by the plain teachings of God's word. Like how the apostle Peter, he exhorted us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and knowledge. You know, it directs us here, Moore argues, to a, a double growth. You know, a growth in grace, which he calls a heart growth, and a growth in knowledge, which he calls a mind growth. You know, the healthiness and, and the correctness of a heart growth it depends greatly upon the healthiness and correctness of the mind growth. So we cannot be taking our cues from the world about how we understand who God is and how he relates to us. No, we must be students of the word of God in this. All right, that's chapter 13 on a rightly directed faith. Chapter 14 is entitled, To the Believer, On Living to the Glory of Christ. All things are for the glory of Jesus and created for him. 
He is the great and almighty creator. Uh, the sooner that we acknowledge this in all of our ways, in all of our ways, the sooner our self-pleasing ways will be denied and the more at peace we'll be. You know, more at peace because we're going to be doing what we're made for as we are made as new creations in Christ. Glorifying the Son of God, glorifying Christ, that is preeminent in the Father's doings. He exalts his Son, puts everything at his feet. He makes all else secondary and subservient to the exaltation of Christ. And it's all the more fitting that we should do the same in all that we do and all that we think. We've got to be growing, not only in grace, but in knowledge. You know, as we've discussed already, um, the aim of the Holy Spirit is to lead us to Christ every day. He's leading us to Christ. And since Jesus is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the source and end of grace on earth and glory in heaven, then we should be seeking him if he is the source of all this, all these things that we want in our life in terms of peace. Again, we touched on that. Now, growing in grace is living more upon Christ, more of Christ, more for Christ. That's what growing in grace is like uh, in our pilgrimage that we have here on earth as Christians. You know, treading out day by day, whatever the day may bring, by God's, by God's will, by his decree. As we, as we continue to walk in Christ, we're gaining and securing grace in our hearts. That should be our daily goal. But it won't be until heaven that we'll see grace in full consummation. Things are imperfect now. We know that for us. Um, Thomas More, he writes, he says, perfect fullness of eternal glory is the portion of all true believers. Of all true believers, strong and weak. Perfect fullness of eternal glory. That's, that's our portion. In other words, we will all enjoy the positional righteousness that we have right now before God in Christ. We will, um, more, we will fully recognize that. It will be fully realized the moment that we are in heaven, that righteousness. And all the corruption will be done away with. Our sanctifications will be complete. It will be done. You know, but continues more. It says some people will have a capacity for more exceeding weight of glory than will others. Now this is very interesting in this chapter. He says again, but some people will have a capacity for more exceeding weight of glory than will others. Speaking of in heaven. He goes on saying our starting point, our starting point in glory 
will depend upon our attained capacity here. Our peculiar position in the family above will be after the measure of our growth in this life. Now, I've, I've heard this theory before. I've heard this before uh, of how this can be or how it will be in heaven in regard to the, the works that we've done in faith in Christ while on earth. Um, I think the author has borrowed his line of thinking from Jonathan Edwards, um, who spoke of individuals in heaven possessing varying capacities to love. He did this in one of his sermons. The more faithful a saint on earth, you know, relative to other saints, if you will, the more of an object of holiness in heaven with a greater capacity to love, and yet, and yet, with a greater capacity of humility. Now, clearly, no one has ever died, gone to heaven, and then returned to talk about it. At least, who hasn't tried to write a book after doing something like this. You know, we know that's, that's not happened. So Edwards, he presents a theory. It's, it's not fact. However, however, it is definitely a worthy hypothesis, I think. You know, it's a respectable, educated guess. You know, his, Edwards' vision of the varying capacities to, in, to love in heaven um, is, is wisely drawn from scriptures, general teachings of the eternal value of good works. They don't burn up, right? They survive into eternity, where we are instructed in scripture to be building up treasures in heaven. Of course, there is no envy in heaven. There's no sin, there's no corruption. So those with lesser degrees of a capacity to love, you know, lesser degrees of glory, if you will, are, are still fully loving in their given capacity and are loved and treasured by saints of greater capacities in ways that make the saints of lesser capacity objects of much love. I know. Some of you are kind of cross-eyed right now. Uh, I, I, I question bringing this forward. Um, even reading Edwards on the on a piece of paper for yourself, you still kind of have to scratch your heads. But it is a kind of a cyclical thing here, is what you know. I, I gain from this more than anything. Um, a process of love, humility, glory, love. You know what you do on earth now matters. Friends, it does. Into eternity. I don't understand. I don't, you're not sitting there in heaven regretting things. You're not burdened with regret. But we know there's a day of judgment waiting for us. And, you know, are there, they, I don't know if about you, but you've, I've heard people say there's no tears in heaven. I don't know if I believe that, at least at the, time, the moment when we're, Everything is revealed in Scripture. It says everything it will be revealed. Now, yes, we have Christ who comes in our stead, and we are not condemned. And what a glorious thing that is. 
uh, but you know, if I've based, if I got into to heaven smelling like smoke, in other words, I, I, I just lived like a sinner, but I died like a saint, if you will, I can't imagine that being a, a fun time in heaven, <laughs> having all this being discussed and revealed. I don't understand how all that works. I don't. No one does. But scripture talks about this. What you do on earth now matters into heaven. And I think, you know, Edward's hypothesis here, you'd probably be better uh, fitted to, to read that sermon sometime, uh, which of course escapes me the title at the moment. Uh, I'll bring it, I'll share it with you next week. Um, but this, the ability and the capacity that we even now gain, you know, in our sanctification, considering what Paul learned and how that benefited him in his walk, regarding, regardless of what he was buffeted with by Satan. So, well, on, I want to continue here before I get too far down on another path. On the last page of this chapter, more he exhorts, he says, look not into your heart to find Christ there. Don't look in your heart to find Christ there, he says. But look to Christ where he is now in heaven. Meaning the presence of Christ is most fully explained in scripture to be in heaven where he sits on the throne over all his creation. Now, yes, he lives in our hearts. And yes, he is always with us in his presence. But our, our looking must be outside of ourselves. It must be external where the source of our hope is. And what better place to be often looking than heaven itself? You know, looking to him, Moore says, looking to Christ and trusting in him, then you will realize a power not only from him, but a power which is Christ himself in you. And that comes through growth and grace and knowledge and enduring trials. All right, the last chapter I'm going to cover this morning, chapter 15. The title of this one is To the Believer Concerning the Discipline of Love. The Discipline of Love. He opens the chapter by saying, Long and trying discipline is for some special purpose, not yet seen, but it will be by and by. In other words, God does not discipline us simply for his amusement. He always has a special purpose in it, even though we cannot see it. But yet, it will be seen in his timing, even perhaps a thousand years into eternity. Things will be more, made more clear. And so, we must be patient. Still wait. And wait on. Time is a tool he often uses, right? To sanctify us. He says, Moore says, quote, there must be patient receiving as well as patient waiting. You know, quite often, what we receive from the Lord in his good discipline is a withholding 
It's a withholding of what the heart longs for. But instead, given that which the heart shrinks back from naturally. Not what we expected. We must be able to say with Job, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? That is, evil as in a godly chastisement or a refining trial. Not evil in terms of the wicked, wickedness or sinfulness. Of course not. And we must be content, along with Paul, in every circumstance with, place, uh, with facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Receiving good, receiving evil. Now we, if we cannot learn to be patient in our receiving good or evil from God, you know, patience in waiting on the good in God's and His good timing, or patient in enduring of receiving evil, then Moore argues, the our author, he argues that the disciplining that we receive It'll be to no avail if we can't be patient and wait on it. It'll be to no avail. And the Lord will begin the discipline again, sometimes again and again. But all in love. Always all in love. Now why does the Lord, why does our Lord do this to us? Because he wants us to look to him as his all in all, both in providence and grace. You know, in, in things, tem, in tem, temporal things, you know, those things are earthly in nature, but beneficial to us, and in things that are spiritual. He's our all in all. Why, though, why does our Lord do this? for us. Why does he do this for us? Well, because he perfectly loves us. He doesn't a little bit love us. He perfectly loves us. Living by faith is to every day, in all things, in every thought of the heart, that we are to be subjecting ourselves to the Lord. And, and ultimately, not having any will but his will. That's what we should be desiring. His will for our life. On page 80, 183 in the, in the book, it talks about you know, walking with Christ. It says, you are sure to walk in the path of safety and blessing when you're walking with Christ. You're sure of it. But what if the way be sometimes marked with rough and thorny places what do we do then what if it's if it's got a lot of thorns in the path what if more asks what if the difficulties and perplexities be many and unexpected what if you know looking unto jesus you know those what ifs there can be so many of them. We know that. 
Those what-ifs will be but his opportunity to prove to you more vividly, if you will let it, if you will let it, to prove to you more vividly, more fully, what a helper, a ready helper that he is. And what a faithful and ever-present friend that we have in him. Those what-ifs, they also reveal to you the genuineness of your faith. My family experienced several of them this morning. Nothing too big, but enough to, oh, I did not respond too well to that. You know, all that the Lord does in relation to you, beloved, is prompted by special, special individual love for you. You know, cherish the thought of this. Sometimes that's all you're going to have. Sometimes he will remove so much that's all you have is the, is the special thought of this. You know, believe the fact of it. If you're having a hard time reconciling your feelings and emotions, believe the fact of it. I don't want to close some here with a, a poem. We're almost up on time. I'm going to close with a poem. It's a poem that I discovered reading John Piper's book, Providence, uh, which a friend had given to me. Now, I'm learning to love poetry, learning to love poetry, uh, slowly but surely. Uh, I'm learning more and more uh, the pleasing cadence of some poems that can just say so much in such far fewer words. And I know those of you who already love poetry are going like, duh. Well, I'm a slow learner. I'm getting there. Well, this poem I'm going to share, written by Martha Snell Nicholson, uh, speaks deeply, I think, to what Moore, Thomas Moore, the author, is getting at regarding the right attitude to receive even the harder things from God after having desired something quite different. Again, as Job questioned, he said, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And take regard or special note, the final couplet in this poem, it says things very well. Well, the poet writes, I stood a mendicant of God before his royal throne and begged him for one priceless gift, which I could call my own. I took the gift from out of his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, but Lord, this is a thorn, and it has pierced my heart. This is strange, a hurtful gift, which thou hast given me. He said, my child, I give good gifts, and gave my best to thee. I took it home, and Though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil, which hides his face. Yeah. So, with that, let me go and close this.